All right, my name is Fred. Uh, I am the lead pastor here. I've been on sabbatical for a month, so you may not have remember me. I'm Fred. It's great to meet you. I know. Hi. Hi. Yeah, it was a great trip. We had a great time. Um, I will say for those of you uh, watching online, we are taking communion at the end of this service. So if you're at home, uh, go grab uh, some juice and crackers, bread and wine, whatever you want to take communion with, and, and we'll take that at the end. Uh, let, me, let me pray for us, and then we'll dive in uh, to our message today. Jesus, <clears throat> it is good to gather uh, with your people. And it is good to be back. And I pray that you would do what you do with, with your word and, and you would speak through it to our hearts and our souls um, and that we would leave this place a different people than we walked in because of you, because we encountered you, um, God, and, and may that change us all. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You know, what I love about uh, some of those Advent readings, uh, if you were here last week and even this week, um, some of those readings, you've got these great Christmas verses, right, that we all know, but around them are stuff that we're like, where are we going with this? Right? Like blood and war and, and all this stuff. And you're like, where do we get to the Christian? And then all of a sudden, it's the verse that we know. What I love about that, because it'd be really easy for us just to read the Christmas verses that we know. But here's the deal. Life isn't just the Christmas verses that we know, is it? Life is all that other stuff. It is war. It is fighting. It is conflict. It is life not working out like, like, like Christmas dinner. You know, like, like it is like, like real stuff. And even in the prophets, in the, in the, in the ancients who, who would speak through the Holy Spirit to the people of God, they would speak in these real life circumstances, real life circumstances of, hey, there is hope coming in the midst of war, in the midst of conflict, in the midst of strife, there is war coming. And here's what I know. I've only been back for a week, y'all, and I've had conversations about spouses dying. I've had conversations about cancer raging in people's bodies. I've had conversations about marriages falling apart. That's real life. And in the midst of that, there is hope. There is the fact that God became flesh for us. And y'all, that's what we celebrate today. And what I hope happens today is that, is that today you leave this place with more faith and hope in that Jesus than you did when you walked in. And even better, I hope you have, you have more faith tomorrow and more hope tomorrow than you do even today. If so, then, then, then you've been to church, right? Because that's what church is. It is the place where we gather around hope. And are y'all ready to do that? Because here's what I hope that we see today. Today, I hope that we see this as we go through this, this Christmas text, that being with Jesus is being with God. That's what I hope that we see. That when we worship Jesus, when we pray, when we experience who Jesus is, we are experiencing all that God offers us. Right? Now, every year... I'll tell you this, we take time to, to celebrate Christmas, right? We, we do the Advent candles, we sing the Christmas songs, which those are great. I kind of wish sometimes we would sing them throughout the rest of the year too, but that would probably be a little awkward, but I love them, right? I love the theology behind them and all of that, and, and we take time to, to, to do that. Typically, though, we hold back on the birth of Jesus until like the Christmas Eve service. But here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking y'all know the story and there's not any spoilers, 
right? And so, so this series, we're actually going to start with the birth of Jesus. And so we're going to start in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 is where we're going to be. Now remember, as we, as we went through the series on questions, the compelling questions that Jesus asked, we looked at all the four different Gospels. And Luke is a doctor, right? The guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke is a doctor. And, and, and so because of that, he focuses on the humanity of Jesus, the, the human side of Jesus. And that's where you see all all these great uh, parts of Jesus's life that you might not pick up in the other gospels. And remember too, Luke came after the fact. So he's interviewing people that, that were with Jesus and that walked with Jesus. And he's compiling all these stories together. And, and he does focus on that humanity of Jesus so that we see Jesus as, this, as not this, this distant God that doesn't understand us, but he is human and, 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 and yet he is fully God. And so he is this God that connects with us and that we can connect to. And, and if, if you look right before the verses for today, if you look in, in, in Luke chapter 1, you see that Jesus had an extended family. He had cousins, right? It was anybody around cousins for Thanksgiving, right? Like, there's nothing more family than like family being together, right? We were around 18 people and three dogs over the holidays. It's chaos. It's fun. It's life. There's just a lot going on. That's, that's what, that's what, that's what um, uh, Luke captures. He captures that, that human side of Jesus. And as we look forward uh, to Christmas, maybe you're going to be around more friends and, and family. And, and I mean, are y'all, are y'all excited about Christmas? Are you ready for Christmas? Yeah, me too. Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this question. What does the Christmas story mean to you, right? As we go into today's text, let that question kind of bounce around in your head. What does the Christmas story mean to you? And by Christmas story, what I mean is the birth of Jesus. What does the birth of Jesus mean to you? Because what we're going to see is, hopefully, is what did it mean to the person that Luke wrote to? What did it mean to the people who read this letter that Luke wrote? What did it mean to them and to, hopefully, we'll see what does it mean for us? The birth of Jesus, that God became flesh. Now, I'm going to give you a little warning. We're going to do kind of like a slingshot. Like Amy said, we are going to pull back that slingshot all the way to Genesis, right, to see what the birth of Jesus means, and then we're going to let it go, right? And then we're going to fly right through, all right? So, so, so what I want you to do is I want you to put your thumb on Luke chapter 2 or put a little ribbon there if your Bible has those and turn with me to Genesis, Right, so we're going to end up in Luke chapter 2, but I want you to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to highlight verses 7 through 11. So keep your finger on Luke 2 and go back to Genesis. Now Genesis in the Old Testament is the story of creation, particularly chapters 1 and 2 talk about uh, creation, the, the seven days of creation, how God created everything in it. <clears throat> But the point of these chapters, and I think this is important for us to understand because we can get lost in detail sometimes, the point of Genesis 1 and 2 isn't necessarily the how God created, it's the fact of who created all things. It is the fact that God created all things. That's the point of those stories. In ancient times, there were multiple stories of, of how the world was created, uh, floating around, and all of them had fickle gods that got into fights and created canyons and, and all this stuff. But what we see in the Genesis account is we see a God who loves humanity and wants to be with humanity and created an environment for humanity to thrive in. 
right? And so we see this beautiful picture of, of the God that we know is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, right? And that's the, the who. It's, it's who created all things. God did. Who do we see walking with Adam and Eve, walking with humanity? We see God is doing that. Now, remember, this, it's going to get a little personal here, but remember, Adam and Eve were naked, right, in the garden, which meant that they literally had nothing between them and nothing between them and God. And that's part of the picture of Genesis, is that it is this perfect, unbarriered, walls-down relationship with the God who creates all things, with the God who created humanity. It is this beautiful picture of a relationship between creator and created until chapter 3, right? Everything changes in chapter 3. We have this serpent enter the garden. And, and that serpent's role is to destroy the relationship between God and humanity and to make it almost impossible to repair, right? And we know that this serpent succeeds in it. He, he tempts Adam and Eve to do something that God told them not to do, right? And, and, and he, he successfully tempts them to disobey this direct command from God. And when he does, something changes. Look at Genesis 3, verse 7. Oh, I told y'all to turn, and I didn't. All right, Genesis 3, verse 7 says this. Uh, where are we? It says, And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves to make themselves, uh, and made themselves loincloths. So, so this is what happened. He tempted them to sin, and they realized something has changed. And they tried to cover up their nakedness. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden by the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the, in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And so here's what we see. We see God showing up to walk with, with creation and the implication here too in Genesis, is that this is something that God would regularly do with them. Like this wasn't a, a, a first-time occurrence, that he would regularly walk with them in the garden and talk. And, and that's what a relationship is, right? Where, where you get to share in each other's company. And that's what God would do. And then, and then something changed. Adam and Eve hid one day when God showed up. Right? Now let me ask you this. Besides playing hide-and-seek, outside of that, why do you hide from someone? Right? Anybody remember hiding from your parents and you didn't do it because it was fun? Right? You did it because you thought you needed to. Right? Why? Because you were the, the good kid? No, you did it because you did something wrong, right? And you were hiding. You were hiding just like they did. That's what they did. They knew they had done something wrong and God showed up. God showed up and, and, and they were hiding because they had sinned. They had done something that God told them not to do. He told them not to eat the fruit of a particular tree and they disobeyed it. And see, that's what sin is. And this is important for us to understand what sin is. Sin is simply not doing something that God says to do or doing something that God says not to do. That's the simplest thing 
and clearest definition of sin. It says God says to do something and you don't, or God says not to do something and you do, and that is sin. Now, the joy of humanity since Adam and Eve is that, guess what? You can't point fingers at someone because we all do that, don't we? We all do things that God says not to do or we don't do things that God says to do. And so, so we're in the same boat with Adam and Eve in many ways. They sinned by looking for life somewhere else. God, They got to walk with, in, in the garden with God and experience life with God. And then the serpent comes up and says, oh, that's not really life. Life is better for you if you do what he doesn't, if you do what he told you not to do. And what they got instead of life is they got guilt and they got shame, right? But in Genesis 3.15, we see something. And y'all, in my opinion, Genesis 3.15 is the springboard for the rest of your Bible. It is where... Uh, it, is, it is where everything uh, from there on explains what this verse means and what's happening from this verse. So look at Genesis 3.15, because here's what it says. And this is God speaking, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. And so remember what happened is, is God is going through and, and basically telling them the consequences of their sin, that what happened when they disobeyed. He, he talks to the woman, he talks to the man, but he also talks to the serpent. And this is him talking to the serpent. He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now notice when God talks, he says, he. He shall bruise your heel. And so as God talks about this consequence of what Satan did, there's also this this coming restoration to it, that we are to expect a he. We are to expect a man, a man to restore the relationship between God and humanity, that, that he, he will crush your head. Is the NIV, is what the NIV says, and, and you will bruise his heel, which means he's going to be hurt in this process, but you're going to be destroyed. Now, big word here, kids, students, adults, the big word, theological word, is proto-evangelium is what this is, right? Proto means first. Evangelium means gospel, Right? The event, like where we get the same word like evangelize and evangelist from. And so what theologians call this verse, it is the very first whisper of the gospel. It is the very first whisper of Jesus. That right after the fall, right after sin broke the relationship and marred the relationship between God and humanity, immediately God is there saying, guess what? There's someone coming and he's going to fix all of He's going to fix it to where we can walk in the garden again one day, right? That God will send someone who will restore the relationship, that serpent that you set out to destroy. And so from Genesis, what happens is, is as we move forward is Adam and Eve leave the garden and Adam and Eve become a family and that family becomes, becomes a nation and throughout that nation's history, they are marked by their relationship with this God, the God that, 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 that spoke this whisper at the beginning of time that there will be one who will restore the relationship that Satan, that Satan tried to destroy. 
Now, this relationship with their, their creator is seen in, in how God protects them and how he provides for them. And he does all of this to continually show the nation of Israel and to show the people watching the nation of Israel that he is a God who can be trusted and that he is a God who gives life both now and forever. Now, in the first 17 books of your Bible, they are the history of this nation, right? And you see how this nation goes from a family to a nation and to, um, uh, to, to, to move around the known world at that time. In Genesis, you see Noah. Y'all know the story of Noah, right? Carried through the flood, carried his family through the flood. You see how God protects his righteous people. But here's the deal. Life with God through Noah isn't the same as it was in the garden. Noah can't fix what Satan broke. And so as this, as this whisper goes out, you see all these, these players, right? You see all these, these characters, these personalities in Scripture. And, and as you're going through the history of Israel, you're like, is this the person? Is, is it Noah? No. Noah dies. And that relationship is still different. God's not walking with them in the garden. In, in Exodus, you see God save his people from this superpower called Egypt, right? And he leads them through the Red Sea, and he leads them through the person of Moses. And you wonder, is Moses it? Is Moses the one that's going to restore what Satan destroyed? But Moses doesn't fix What's saying destroyed? They're not walking with God in the garden like they did. In Numbers, as they're wandering through the wilderness, you see God lead the nation by a cloud during day and fire at night, and his presence is with them all the time. But here's what happens. Eventually, that cloud disappears and that fire goes out, right? That cloud and fire aren't the ones that saved the nation. They aren't the ones that saved Humanity. God's not walking with them like he did in the garden. And then you have Leviticus and Deuteronomy, these books of laws and rules and, and their commandments and rules to provide structure, right? So, so people can know God better and, and experience him. But here's the deal. Those rules still don't fix what the serpent broke. Right? The New Testament calls them a babysitter is the word that Paul uses. Right? God doesn't walk with them like he did in the garden. And then, and then the rest of the nation's history unfolds. You see this nation struggle to keep God as the giver of life. You see them struggle to trust God. Right? Like Adam and Eve, they consistently try to find life in other places. They try to worship other gods. They try to be their own gods. And then you see time after time it doesn't work. And there's always this voice whispering to them, life is found somewhere else. But then God raises up these other voices to tell them, no, life is found in relationship with God. That's the voice of the prophets, right? That there's a way to restore this, this relationship that was broken. Now, a prophet is, is an interesting person. They're a man or a woman who, who uh, speak the very words of God to the people of, of the nation of Israel. I heard this great definition for prophet, that a prophet is a person who speaks the heart of God into a situation into a relationship, into a people. And that's what you see the prophets doing. Just like there were 17 books of history, there are 17 books of prophecy. And each time they're speaking the heart of God into a situation and into a relationship. And sometimes it's encouragement, like, man, y'all are doing a great job, keep it up. Unfortunately, that's not very often. Most of the time, it is words of conviction. It is words of, of you're sinning, 
Stop it. Right? Stop it and trust God. And sometimes it's words of clarity because God used these prophets to take Genesis 3.15 and like a flower that blooms, make it more clear and make it more beautiful. They're the, word, they're the ones who gave us the word Savior, Messiah, that we are to expect one to come. As Amy said, Emmanuel, God with us. Right? These books of prophecy, we get a clear picture of who this he is from Genesis 3.15 that will crush the serpent's head. I'm going to read some of these to you because, believe it or not, there are over 60 specific prophecies about who that he is in Genesis 3.15. I'm not going to read all of them, right? Um, um, but I'm going to highlight some because they're, they're specific to our passage in Luke, and I promise we are going to get to Luke, right? We're doing the slingshot, and we probably are going to fly right over, but we're going to, we, are going to, we are going to touch on it. Listen to this. From Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, we see that this he from Genesis 3.15 that's going to crush the serpent's head is going to be born of a virgin. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. He shall be the one to restore the relationship between God and humanity. Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And so this he that's going to crush the serpent's head, he's going to be of the line of David. He's going to be of, of King David, if you've heard of him, like his son, 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 all the way down the line. It's going to, it's going to continue with Jesus. Jesus is going to be there. And then Micah 5.2, which we read, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathath, you who are a little will be among the clans of Judah, but from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler of Israel and whose coming forth is from old and from ancient of days. So he will be virgin born, he'll be of the family of David, and he will be born in Bethlehem. So with all of that, let's turn to Luke. Right, so flip back over to Luke, because the need has been seen. This relationship with God must be restored, and there is only one who can do it. There's only one who can crush the serpent's head. Look at Luke chapter 2. Verse 1 through 3 is what I'm going to read first. It says, In the days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quinarius... Uh, the governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town, right? So, so, so you know, what I love about Christmas is that we know the story, right? There is this census, and so, so, so Joseph and Mary hop on the donkey, and they head to Bethlehem, right? Because there's been a census, which means they're counting the people of the nation of Israel, most likely for tax purposes, so they know how much to charge and who to charge. But to do that, you had to go back to the city of your people, which for them was the town of Bethlehem. And so that's where they did go. And this decree was declared across the whole Roman Empire, which, which, which was huge at the time. And so you've got to go to the city where you're from to be registered. Look at verse 4. It says, it says verse 4, And so Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to, Ju- to, Ju- to Judea, uh, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, 
because he was of the house of the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Right? And so in these two short verses, we see some of those prophecies that we read being checked off. Right? That this he who is coming is of the house of David. Check. Right? Virgin born. We know the story of Mary and Joseph. Check. And now he's on his way to Bethlehem. Check. Which is interesting because there's also prophecy that he is from Galilee. Right? And how can he be from Galilee and from Bethlehem? Because this happened. That's how. He is from both. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says this. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him at the end. Now, like I said, many of you know the story. They came to Bethlehem and there was no room for them at the end. Now, here's the deal. Inns weren't particularly the best places to stay. Like, don't think of the, of the, the hotel down the street, right? Like, like, like uh, they were pretty rough places because what was needed to happen when you went to a town, particularly your hometown, you had family there. And so what you would do is you would go to the city uh, square area, you'd go to the gates of the city, and you would stand there. And people would welcome you into their home because that's what a hospitable Jewish person would do, particularly if you were family. You would say, hey, I'm Joseph. Remember me? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come over, come over, come over. We'll take care of you. The problem is no one did that. There was no hospitality in Bethlehem during that time. So many people were there, even the inns were full, and the inns weren't safe. The inns are oftentimes where criminals went. They're oftentimes uh, where, where a more uh, rough population, let's say, would go. Right? But that's all that was there. So Joseph and Mary go knock on that door, and there's not even room there. And they, and they put them where the animals are in a manger. Now, here's the deal. Some believe this manger was a cave that they went to. Some think it was like this shanty kind of kind of shack structure, you know, your nativity at home may be one of those two things. It may look like a little dark cave, or it may be like pieces of wood stuck together barely, particularly if you've had it over the years, those pieces of wood have fallen apart, that's fine. Um, some see the manger that they laid him in as like a crib, like this, which by the way, we found up in the attic, it's a beautiful crib, but I'm going to tell you right now, there was a creepy baby doll laying in it, <laughs> and I don't know, but it's gone, Right? <laughs> But the crib is cute, right? And some people think that's what, that's what they laid Joseph in. That they, they, I mean, that's what they laid Jesus in was this, 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 this crib, like this trough where animals would eat out. Some think it was actually a hole in the ground. Like if you're in a cave, that they would, they would uh, uh, pop out a hole in the, in the stone and fill that with water and food. And that's what the animals would eat out of. But no matter what you picture in your head... There's one thing in common in that this is where the animals were, right? And so it wasn't this clean hospital-type room environment. Like if you've ever been to the, to the Biltmore, you know, and you do the tour, and they say, oh, this is the room where George Vanderbilt was born, and it's got the velvet on the walls, and it wasn't that, right? Right? We have baby showers anticipating the birth of our babies, Right? We prepare a nursery, we get everything set and ready, we pack the clothes, we pack the bags, we go to the hospital, we do the tours, we watch the videos. 
Like, I think some of those nurses just get, like, kicks watching the men freak out. Right? Because they say all the words, you watch all the videos, and it is hilarious, right? But we do all that. We bring meals after the baby is born. We celebrate. We, we send out pictures and announcements. And the contrast here is striking. That this God, who has been anticipated since Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that the entire nation has been going, Noah, are you it? Moses, are you it? Is is, is this next leader it? Joshua, are you it? No, no, no. They've been anticipating for thousands of years. When he finally shows up, they put him where the animals are. You see, the Savior of the world has come, and he's laid in an animal's water bowl. Now let me ask you a question I asked at the beginning. What does the Christmas story mean to you? In my mom's house, I spent some time with my mom uh, a few months ago, and there's a train track that runs right behind her house. And uh, I never heard the train track during the day. I only heard it at 3 o'clock in the morning when it came zipping by. But here's what I noticed. The longer I was there, guess what happened? I got used to it. Now, my mom, uh, she, she's losing some of her memory, but her ears are sharp. Like, me and my sister can be in the back of the house talking about what we're going to do with some of her collectibles. And, and she'll be like, what are you talking about? Like, she can hear us whispering back there about stuff. Her hearing's fine. You know what? She doesn't hear that train anymore. I didn't hear that train anymore because I got used to it. Here's the deal, y'all. This story that I'm talking about, that starts in Genesis and comes all the way here to Luke and the rest of our Bible explains the significance of it. For us, it can be like a train that we get used to, right? It can be a story that we take for granted. It can be this, this thing that we're like, yeah, 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 yeah. I've read it. I know it. Here's the deal. You know, God became flesh for us to restore a relationship with him that Satan broke. And we can't let that pass us by this season. And so let me ask you, maybe maybe we've all gotten used to Jesus being a manger. Well, as we look at this passage, I've got some things for us to consider as we close down today that maybe will make Christmas a little more fresh for you this year. First one is this. Jesus is better than we expect, all right? Because if you were to read this story and the fact that the Son of God was placed in a, in a, in a water bowl, in a food bowl, I guarantee you that doesn't meet the expectations of what they were thinking was going to happen. You see, and here's the deal we've got to remember is that Jesus won't meet our expectations. He's much better than our expectations right? If you're a person living back then and you were expecting this coming Messiah to have a grand birth and to be born in a palace or in a temple, then you were sadly mistaken when you showed up at an animal trough, right? You see, if they were expecting God to connect with those in power, then their expectations were broken because he connected with those in poverty. It was the shepherds 
Like the, 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 the people that nobody paid attention to, they were the ones that heaven opens up to and says, he's here, he's born, now go worship him. And they do. It's kings from distant lands, wise men from distant lands that are looking for him that come. People that expected a king, Jesus didn't meet their expectations. He's so much better. And so let me ask you this. In your walk with Jesus, have your expectations been, been crashed and dashed and shattered across the shores sometimes? Have your expectations to, for God to do something grand maybe ended up with God doing something completely normal? Let me tell you, Jesus is better than your expectations. Tony Evans said this. He said, he said, the trial that you are facing is not happening to you. It's happening for you. Let God use it for your good and his glory. Even this morning, I was scrolling through Facebook, and one of my friends posted this from Tim Keller, who's been diagnosed with cancer again. And he said this uh, in a recent uh, tweet. He said, I have stage four pancreatic cancer. Now, Tim Keller is this pastor in Manhattan. If you don't know him, uh, follow him. He's, he's an incredible pastor. He said, I have stage four pancreatic cancer, but it is endlessly comforting to have a God who is both infinitely more wise and more loving than I am. He has plenty of good reasons for everything he does and allows that I cannot know. And therein is my hope and strength. I deeply appreciate prayer for my situation, exclamation point. But my main purpose in this last post was to show that having a God who is in some ways beyond our comprehension, especially regarding evil and suffering, is more of a spiritual strength than having than it is an intellectual problem. The fact that God is beyond our expectations is actually a strength not an intellectual problem, because beyond our expectations is better, right? Here's what else we see. We see that Jesus is humble, right? The creator of all things was born in this humble place, and maybe for you as you go into Christmas and, and you're thinking about how to spend your money or what to ask for for Christmas, maybe humility is a good thing to have, reminding you that your faith is anchored in this dirty and lowly place, and so give thought to where you're spending money this season. Give thought to how much money you're spending this season. Give thought to where you're spending money this season. And kids and adults too, do give thought to what you ask for this holiday season. Right? Our Jesus is a humble Jesus. But most importantly through this text, it's this. It's that Jesus gives life. Right, that Jesus restores this life-giving relationship with God. When we look at the birth of Jesus, we see deliverance. The Savior has come. No longer is God distant. He is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Right? When he previously carried Noah through a flood and saved the nation of Israel through this Red Sea, through Moses, and he led the people by fire and cloud. Now he again walks with his people. And so when people looked at Jesus and said, Jesus, we had Noah, we had Moses, we had Josh, we had all these people, are you the one? Which is a matter of fact what John the Baptist asked him. And Jesus said, and the way Jesus says is, yes, 
Look at the prophecies, and they are fulfilled in me. You see, through Jesus, God again walks with his people. Being with Jesus is being with God. Right? The serpent invited Adam and Eve to sin, and that sin created this changed and marred relationship with God. And Jesus restores that relationship through the death and resurrection. And, and this restored relationship is you. So instead of Adam and Eve walking in the garden with them, not only them, but you get to walk with Jesus. You get to walk with God every day and every step of your life. And so as we think about Genesis through Luke, and as we think about what does the Christmas story mean to you, do you, see, do you see who, the who of the Bible instead of the what of the Bible? That the who is God. Do you hear God whisper from the very beginning that a Savior is coming and his name is Jesus? Do we understand that away in a manger, right, a king was born and a Messiah came, and the power of that meant that that serpent who tempted Adam and Eve began shaking in his boots because he knew in just 33 short years there would be a cross and there would be a resurrection and his power would be over. That's the baby born in a manger. And most importantly, do we accept that invitation to join with Jesus in walking with God. And today we take communion to celebrate that. And so if you haven't said yes to Jesus, to walking with him, then let today be the day you say yes. And, and taking this communion will be the, uh, a physical display of that. That's why communion is for those who have said yes to Jesus, because it is an opportunity to publicly uh, display your, your, your willingness to follow him. Right For those of you who have said yes to Jesus, I ask you to, to, to spend this time contemplating the fact that God became flesh for you and what that means for you. The joy and the peace uh, in the midst of wars and battles that that means for you. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us. And when you're ready, you can come up and take one of these cups. Um, I'll walk you through how to open them when it's time to take communion together. And then we will take communion together. Jesus as we go into this time, as we go into this space of communion, may we see the importance of you becoming flesh, right? That you are better than our expectations, that, that you give life. You show us a, a humble way to approach and live life. And then through all of that, you give us a good and right relationship with the God who loves us and the God who created us. And may this time of communion light that candle in our souls again. May this time of communion be the space that, that we know the presence of the God of the universe. And may you be glorified in it. In Christ's name I pray, amen. And y'all can come on down, take communions, and then we'll take the elements together when you're back in your seats. these work is uh, we take the little cracker out first, so you flip it over to that side, take the cracker out, and we'll take communion together. Listen to this from Matthew 26. It says, now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, and said, take this, uh, eat, this is my body. And you can flip it over to the juice side, which I love, these things are adorable. And then Jesus said this in Matthew 27, and he took the cup, 
And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray, Jesus, as we go into this time of of music and worship, may we be reminded um, that God became flesh and dwelt among us. And may that change uh, everything about us. In Christ's name I pray, amen.